Welcome to season six of the Florida Institute for Child Welfare podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Magruder. This season, we will hear from researchers, advocates, and folks with lived experience in child welfare. Through these conversations, we hope to gain insight on how to meaningfully co-create knowledge alongside those we aim to serve here at the Institute, children, families, and workers. Let's get started. In 2021, the Florida State Legislature passed Senate Bill 80, which outlined a series of initiatives aimed at improving the state's child welfare system. Section 21 included a mandate that the Florida Institute for Child Welfare assess Florida's current approach to developing independent life skills among foster care youth transitioning out of the state's foster care system. Specifically, this evaluation focused on the effectiveness of the state's efforts to assist youth in foster care in developing life skills to become self-sufficient adults. Florida policy dictates a caregiver-centric approach to life skills development. These skills are described as those needed to ensure self-sufficiency and well-being as foster care youth transition to adulthood and include things like daily living activities, academic success, employment, financial management, housing, health, family, and mentorship. This evaluation wrapped in November 2022, and we're talking today with the principal investigators, Dr. Michael Henson. Hello. And Dr. Hyunji Lee. Hi. We're also joined by Diamond Whitley, a young adult with lived expertise of Florida's foster care system, who is a co-collaborator on this project. Welcome, everyone. So, Michael, can you give us a brief background on the project and an overview of how you approached the design of the evaluation? Sure. This project came about, as you mentioned, from Senate Bill 80, which was passed in 2021. And in that bill, part of it had created a mandate that said that the Institute was supposed to review the way that the state of Florida approaches life skills development. Once I got involved, I started working with Lisa about trying to put together this evaluation plan. And so when I was trying to think about how do we approach this evaluation, what do we want out of it? right? Like what are the things that we want to capture and get at? I wanted to create an understanding of life skills development at the different levels, or you could call it systemic levels, but at the different levels in which life skills development kind of manifests or occurs, right? We can think about different systemic levels. We can think at the very top, like what is life skills development look like on a policy level, right? Because it's child welfare, everything is supposed to be driven by policy. So let's take a look at, you know, what does the policy say? And then how does it look at the organizational level, right? Florida has the community-based care model where there's a bunch of different organizations that are responsible for foster care services across the state of Florida. So what does it look like at that CBC level? And then what does it look like for the case managers and child welfare professionals who are trying to implement and actually ensure that life skills are being developed? And then what does it look like for the caregivers who are supposed to be involved in life skills development? And what does it look like for the foster care youth, both in care and who have already transitioned out of care? So that was the thinking about what do we want to get out of this evaluation? And I felt that the best way to approach it would be with a mixed methods approach. So we ended up doing a number of different methods to understand what's happening in the state of Florida in regards to life skills development. We did policy analysis. So we took a look at Florida state statutes, and we also took a look at Department of Children and Families policy and procedure. We also used interviewing 
in different ways. We did some policy interviews with some representatives from the CBCs to kind of get an idea of what does life skills development look like at each CBC. And then we did surveys with child welfare professionals and caregivers to get a lay of the land of what are the experiences of these individuals. And then we did interviews with child welfare professionals and caregivers and former foster care youth. Once again, capture what does this all look experientially? And then finally, we did secondary data analysis and Hyunji was the driver on that one. We took a look at NIDID, which is National Youth Transition Database data, and that's run from the Administration of Children and Families. So we combined all these different methods to really capture what's happening in the state of Florida for life skills development at these different levels. And then another key part of this evaluation is we wanted to make sure that we had individuals who were impacted by the current approach to life skills development involved in the actual development of the evaluation, as well as helping us understand or even interpret the results of the evaluation and give us suggestions about how could we do things better, what type of recommendations are needed to improve life skills development in the state of Florida. So that's how Diamond got pulled in because she has that background in foster care. We also included some people who had experience with working in the child welfare system in Florida or running an organization for former foster care youth. And then finally, since we were working with youth, which are a highly vulnerable population, we really had to think about how do we protect these youth what are the key considerations that we need to make in terms of involving youth, both current and former foster care youth. We spent some time talking with some other people who had some expertise trying to work with vulnerable populations. They gave us some feedback about what's the best way to work with youth to protect their privacy, protect their rights, while also including them. Because I don't think that you can talk about life skills development without including youth who are directly impacted by life skills development. So the legislature did have the forethought of needing to include youth voice in this particular project. It was actually part of the mandate that we would try to seek the experiences and the voice of those with lived expertise in the foster care system. And so it sounds like the team had to be incredibly thoughtful about how to do that. And for those listeners who aren't as familiar with research and institutional review boards and protection of research participants, children, which typically is defined as under 18, are considered a federally protected class of research participant. And so there are a lot of unique strategies that need to be put in place in order to, like Dr. Henson mentioned, make sure that their rights are protected, particularly among this population who have experiences of trauma, who might be particularly vulnerable over and above children, generally speaking. And we did on this project have a youth advocate, and this was a person located in another department at Florida State University who did not have a vested interest in this study and was an individual that our youth participants, whether they were current foster youth or former foster youth, so even if they were over 18, could reach out to this person if they had any concerns about the study, how they were treated, anything like that. So that was one strategy that this team undertook to help promote feelings of safety among the youth in the study. Dr. Lee, I'd like to move over to you for a second and ask you to 
go over the major findings of the evaluation. Sure. So there's several important findings from our study, and we found that these findings are consistent and reliable across our multiple data, such as interviews, surveys, and secondary data analysis. So first, we found that while most foster caregivers agree that they're primarily responsible for helping youth develop life skills, the caregivers report that there is a lack of knowledge and different levels of familiarity with the state's requirements for life skills development. There is a no former or organized system where caregivers receive support for life skills development. In caregivers support, they receive minimal or no support resources or information from their professionals for helping their foster youth develop these life skills. We also found that caregivers' confidence in providing life skills development varied by life skill domains. For example, like caregivers were quite confident about providing budget education and financial management, housing education, and health education and risk prevention and family support and healthy marriage education. Conversely, they had little confidence about providing youth with services to develop employment and educational support, which are essential to securing financial sufficiency among these youth. In terms of methods and measures for assessing independent life skills development, caregivers and professionals say that many youth do not receive informal needs assessment and independent living needs assessment, which are the state's requirements. And some professionals who complete assessments report that these assessments are beneficial in creating independent living plans with transitioning youth. However, some professionals and caregivers say that it's hard to make the youth engage in completing this assessment and developing life skills plan. And similar to findings from former foster youth, the results of our secondary data analysis also revealed that a number of former foster youth report experiencing outcomes such as substance abuse refer, incarceration, and homelessness, which suggests that current approach to independent living skills development needs to be improved. And it is very important to note that across data sources, having reliable relationships with adults was noted as a significant support to youth who are transitioning to adulthood. And lastly, another key finding that we should focus on is youth engagement in life skills development. So former foster youth in our study report that they felt their voices were ignored during their time in care. Also, former foster youth mentioned that it's critical to have standardized and comprehensive life skill development programs and curriculum that are used in addition to individualized life skills development. Great. Thank you so much. So it sounds like the caregiver approach where the caregiver is meant to take primary responsibility for life skills development of foster youth and their care needs a little bit of work. And Diamond, I'm very interested in your perspective on these findings. I know as part of your role, we shared these findings with you to get your thoughts on them and see if it made sense to you in the context of your own experience or those other youth that you're familiar with in terms of their stories. So I just wanted to give you a moment to react to those findings and share your thoughts. Yeah, as I was reading on my own time a few weeks back, it all kind of made sense because it's different to get the data from other people to hear them speak about it and to put it into a research study but it's another thing to actually see it and actually experience it and 
it's really validating to the youth that I know in myself because it's a feeling of not being alone and knowing that these concerns that I had, it wasn't just me and I wasn't just like thinking about it in my head. And now we have the opportunity to make sure that those experiences aren't prolonged to the next generation. So I'm very excited to see what comes of it. Excellent. And I wanted to transition a little bit, but I'm going to stay with you here, Diamond. You've been very active in sharing your lived expertise in child welfare in a number of ways, including as a collaborator on this project. So what made you want to get involved in this evaluation? So initially, when Senate Bill 80, like before it even got passed, I was involved in a group called One Voice Impact. And we actually went to the legislator and advocated for a study of this sort. So to hear that it was finally happening enough was just like, oh, this is great. But then I got called upon by you all. And what better way to make my mark than to be involved in something that I actually advocated for? It's kind of like putting your money where your mouth is, if you feel me. I met up with the team and you all were so accepting and great and warm. And I was like, this is something that I want to be a part of. And from your perspective, why is it important to have youth voice included in these evaluations in this way as really a collaborator on the team and not just a research participant? It's super important to have youth voice because how are you going to be able to solve the issues of your constituents and the population you're serving without getting the actual input of the population that you're serving? There are a lot of intellectual youth in the foster care system. In my personal opinion, every youth that is in the foster care system has a level of intellect that just has not been heard or listened to yet. So just because they may be 14, 15, 16, that doesn't mean that their experiences and their input on things doesn't matter. There are so many things that I feel like youth can be a part of, and research is just like the first step. Going to legislator is just the first step. We should be in the hands of everything that goes on in our lives, if not directly the youth you're serving, people who have lived that life and maybe can give a more mature perspective. Thank you. And Michael, in your role as co-PI of this project, in what ways did you engage Diamond and how was that helpful for you and your team members? We did it a few ways. For me, the really important parts that I think engaged Diamond with and she really contributed meaningfully was first design of the evaluation. And the big part of the design of the evaluation was the development of the interview scripts, specifically the former foster care interview script. Diamond also helped us out with doing some training for our interviewers to kind of get this experience of what is it like to interview a former foster care youth? What are some potential challenges you might face? What are some ways that you can engage with a former foster care youth? to make them feel comfortable and make them feel like they can share their experiences. And then secondly, we engaged with Diamond in terms of interpretation of the results. More so, I think at the end of the project, we gave Diamond the evaluation report to review and provide feedback. And she provided some really great feedback about the former foster care youth sections of the report and specifically the case study 
section of the report. And to give a little bit of background of what I mean by the case study section of the report, we ended up taking several of the former foster care youth interviews and turned them into case studies. And basically in research, a case study is kind of like a deep dive. You'll take like an interview from an individual and flesh it out into more of a narrative, more of a story. So she provided really awesome feedback on those case studies. And for me, the feedback was really about, does this sync up with experiences of her and some of the people that she knows who are also former foster care youth? And if they don't, how could we do it better? I think the general consensus was that they synced up pretty well. I have a background in social work and anthropology. And so for engagement with Diamond, a big part of my thinking came from my anthropology background. We can think of the foster care system as its own cultural system, right? And there are norms, there are structures, there's also specific language that is used in the system. We could call that insider language, and we could also call it insider knowledge. If you're in the foster care system, you have this insider knowledge of what the foster care system is, how does it function, and what is it like. So for me, in terms of the engagement of Diamond in developing interview scripts, I was thinking like, okay, so these youth have this insider knowledge, they have these experiences, they have this language. It's really important to create these interview scripts that sync up with that knowledge and sync up with that language and also experience, right? We were trying to create these interview scripts that were using language that made sense to youth, right? Former foster youth. A big sticking point that we ended up spending a lot of time on was this idea of aging out of care. From an outside perspective, when you hear aging out of care, I think a lot of us think of like a youth turns 18, they're no longer in legal custody of the Department of Children and Family, so they've aged out. But as I talked with Diamond about that, she really highlighted this idea that aging out is much more complex, but she was like, you can't just say, tell me about aging out of care because everybody has a different experience and they might think about it differently. That sound right, Diamond? Yes. So in the foster care system, lots of us think of aging out in three different steps because after you turn 18, there are programs that you can be involved in even after you're an adult. So the first one is very simple. When you turn 18, you're not in regular foster care anymore. So you don't have to stay there. So you can age out at that point and live your normal life. And that could be it. But you can also go into extended foster care, which is a program that is exactly like foster care. It's just the caregiver doesn't have as much responsibility for the youth. You are an adult. You can make your own choices. You have to have some qualifying activities to still be involved. But for the most part, you're an adult. And that's up to the age of 21. You get stipends and you have your rent paid for by the department and stuff like that. So you're still being taken care of just in a less intensive manner. And then there's another program, post-education services and supports. So this is kind of when you go to college or trade school or whatever type of higher education institute that you choose, you can still be under the department, but not under legal custody. And they give you a stipend for going to school. They pay for your tuition. And that's really a lot less intensive than extended foster care or foster care. 
because you're pretty much on your own. And as long as you stay in college and get good grades, you're in there. And then there is aftercare, which is kind of like a little subsection that a lot of people don't really talk about. It's for youth that don't necessarily want to be shackled to an independent living program, but they still need help transitioning from being a youth in care to being an adult. So they provide temporary services on a need basis and that youth and whoever is collaborating with them, a case manager, they kind of work together till the youth feels like they are able to move on to adulthood. And Diamond, can I follow up with you on that? I really appreciate you going over those different potential trajectories for youth, which absolutely highlights what Michael was saying about this being a very complex process, right? It's not a one-size-fits-all experience. Some of the feedback that we heard within the evaluation was related to some of the extended foster care options or pest services that There are, as you mentioned, certain requirements you have to meet, a certain number of enrollment hours in college, for example, or needing to work a certain number of hours at a place of employment. And we did hear from some youth that some of those qualifiers presented some unique challenges for them. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about that. It is very different for every youth, but I've heard a few examples. I'm in the PEST program myself. So I'm going through the struggle as well. But particularly in that program, youth find it hard to maintain a full-time employment and also be able to live near these institutions because of how high rent is. The housing market is absolutely horrible, especially when you get next to like reputable institutions. I live by UCF. So my rent is 1200 a month. And with the extra fees they add on, it turns out to be like 1400 a month. So I am making by by having a job and going to school. I have animals as well. So I take care of those. So it's the added pressure of it's hard for everyone out here with affordable housing, the cost of living, inflation, And then to add it on, having to be a full-time student and maintain a certain level of grades, some youth can't do that. So what they end up doing is either they take courses that are not required for a major, they never pick a major, and they just keep going into college and trying to pass classes so that they can get their stipends, or they try their best to go through college and also have a job because that's what they need to live. And then it gets too much. Their grades are affected way too much. They get kicked out of the program and then they don't end up going to school. They end up having entry-level jobs for the rest of their lives. And then with extended foster care, it's kind of a different struggle in the sense of supervised living arrangements, because in order to stay in extended foster care, you have to be in a supervised living arrangement. And Dr. Lee, that really, I think, speaks to what you found with the National Youth and Transition Database analyses, that there's a lot lacking in terms of life skill development for both employment programs as well as post-secondary educational support in that sort of 17 to 19 range. And then also Dr. Henson's work on the case studies, we definitely saw a lot of housing instability issues come up. So certainly I think what you're talking about, Diamond, speaks to what we found in the evaluation as well. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, one thing that was kind of interesting for me when I was looking at the interviews was 
we said we wanted to interview former foster care youth, but there was a few people we interviewed who were in extended foster care, but felt like they were former foster care youth, even though they were in extended foster care. Like there was a difference, right? Like there's a difference. I was in foster care. Now I'm in extended foster care. And that was something that I didn't even really think about, or it just emerged from the interviews that once again, it's this kind of insider knowledge that I don't have because I haven't been in the foster care system. And I haven't worked in the foster care system, especially in the Florida foster care system. And I think one of my favorite pieces of feedback from Diamond on that was like the original script said something like, what were some challenges or I don't want to say failures, but maybe failures of the foster care system to prepare you for life. And then the next one was, what are some successes of the foster care system? And Diamond was just basically like, don't say that because, <laughs> because she was like, I can guarantee you that almost everybody you're going to talk to would never describe their experiences in the foster care system as a success. It was just something so small, right? Something so small that stemmed from like a lack of understanding of the foster care system, that insider perspective that on face value for me, didn't seem like that big of a deal, but it was a really big deal for people who had been in the foster care system. Having Diamond there to catch that was so helpful because it turned an interview script that was kind of okay to an interview script that I felt was really great and was also respectful, right? Of like the former foster care youth experience. That was a really big thing for me in regards to engaging Diamond in this whole process. And then the other one was having Diamond read the case studies and provide feedback. We could call that kind of like a form of member checking. And in research, basically member checking is when you consult or talk to a member of a group that you collected data from and basically say, does this sync up with your experience or your knowledge of whatever you're examining? So once again, in this situation, the question was for Diamond, you were in foster care, you aged out, you transitioned. Does what we're presenting, do these findings sync up with your experience as a former foster care youth and your experience being in care and your experience trying to transition out of care? So that was the other way that we used Diamond and Engaged Her. And then just in general, to pull from the social work side of things, this idea of equity, inclusion, right? Elevating voices of those that are in the populations that we work with. Just having Diamond as somebody who has this background being involved, I felt like this was also a way to ensure that we as researchers are fighting back against these longstanding power imbalances that exist between researcher and subject or researcher and population. I think that makes a lot of sense. And Hyenji, I'm curious for your perspective as well. You also were new to Florida when this project began. So probably similar to Michael had some catch up to do. What did it mean for you to have Diamond as really a co-evaluator on this project? Yes, as Dr. Michael mentioned, like I really got much, much help from Diamond in developing measures, especially survey questionnaires. So I also had a similar experience like Michael had. And I also, after developing the survey questionnaire, I showed Diamond to get her thoughts and feedback. And she really provided valuable feedback on the survey measures. So for example, like Diamond said, oh, this terminology or this words 
do not much make sense or foster youth may not fully understand what this means. Excellent. So Diamond, can you tell us what it was like for you to be a member of this evaluation team? Yeah, as Michael said, I had a really big hand on a lot of the stuff that he was doing. He is probably one of the most funniest people on earth. So having a researcher that wasn't just like, okay, we are doing this. This is what we need together. This is what I need from you. And let's do it. It was like, I was actually talking to a friend and we were doing a project together in school. I don't know if he has a similar experience, but that's how I felt. And so I also like that it wasn't one of the two extremes that you see with researchers. One extreme you see is, okay, I am having you here because I need to meet a quota. I need to do a certain thing. And that's why you're here for. And I'm not going to put anything that you say into this research. Or I am so empathetic and I care so much about your feelings that I'm going to take what you say, no matter what you say. And we're going to just do that. I love how it was a dynamic that I would present ideas and he wasn't afraid or he respected me enough to challenge me on what I was saying so that we can both come to a consensus that was not only representative of what the youth experience in here, but also able to be accurately like measured and tracked and could bring back the best results. So being on this project, I felt like there were some moments where I didn't know what was going on, but simply that is just research. And I found that out. <laughs> like during this experience. But when I was actively called upon, everything was clearly explained. Anything that they needed follow-up from, they weren't afraid to ask. And it was a thing where I felt like I was genuinely being valued as a participant in the research study and not just a quota that was having to be met. Making the interview process and stuff like that, when I was called upon for the case studies and to review the actual findings, I was blown away because I could tell how much thought and effort and how much the youth voice was actually encapsulated in this research. I read the case studies and I cried because it was just so... I'm sorry, I'm going to cry again. It was so accurate to the experiences that I could see my friends. I could see the people that I consider family. Hats off to you guys. And I feel like this is a study that actually shows what life is like for us. And you don't see that very often. Thank you so much, Diamond. And I'm so appreciative of that feedback for our team. And I think it speaks to the rapport that you and Michael have and that you and Hyunji have, right, to really be a team in this and to be vulnerable with each other around what we're doing well, what we could be doing better on, and really the crux of this, making sure that we get these stories right, because they're not my story, Michael's story, Hyunji's story, right? This is stories of former foster youth that we need to make sure we get it right. So we certainly appreciate your involvement in that way. And I know that we've talked a lot about the positives, right? We have tried to do a lot of things to engage you in this study, as well as properly engage our youth participants in this study. For example, I know that Dr. Henson, once he developed those case studies, because that wasn't our original analysis plan, actually gave youth an opportunity to review those 
to your point, Diamond, make sure they were accurate representations of their stories. So I think that we did our best, but of course, there's always room for improvement. And I think you touched on one of those things, Diamond. You said, now you know that there's this research trajectory or timeline where we're up, we're down, we're super busy, and then maybe it's a little slower when we're collecting data and that maybe we could have done a little bit more in terms of regular engagement. So Michael, could you talk a little bit about that? We definitely had long periods of time where we were kind of disconnected with Diamond, focusing on data collection and focusing on this and that. Basically, how could we have engaged Diamond throughout the process better? Thinking about it now, I think it would have been great to have Diamond read the interview scripts directly and had a conversation about those interviews, like what stands out to you? What are some key aspects of these youth's interviews that you feel like are important to cover and bring out when we do the write-up and the analysis? I'm happy that the analysis and the write-up aligned really well with Diamond's knowledge and experience. And as she mentioned, it aligned with her friend's experiences in the foster care system. So I'm really happy that worked out. But I think that if I were to do it again, I would have had her involved in the analysis and figure out how do we do that in a productive, meaningful way. I think that would have been a really great way to have her engage in the project more and maybe even have conversations during the data collection process of like, hey, we're running into some issues here. We're, you know, we did our first interview. Do you want to maybe hear it and see how can our interviewer do better? Like, are there certain things that we could have had that interviewer focus on to capture more detail or more experience or capture key aspects of foster youth experience in the system better? I think that would be some ways that I would maybe do things differently in order to have Diamond more engaged in this project. Yeah, I didn't even think of those things. Well, obviously, because I'm not like actively a part of what was going on in that particular time. But I feel like those aspects or those ideas are great and should be explored. But I also wanted to touch on the fact that youth in the system of care, if you're engaging them, you have to be in constant communication with them because you never know what happens in their life. Like for example, during this study, I had moved from one job to another. So I had a completely different email than I was using. My number was still the same because I used the same number on everything. But if my number had changed, if it was a different work number, that could have been a really huge situation because then I wouldn't have been able to finish out. So making sure that you are staying in contact with these youth because their information can change at any point in time their phone can get cut off, like you never know what could happen. So that's a really big thing. And I also wanted to go back, if you don't mind, we were talking about the case studies and how they were handled from the youth that were receiving them. And I wanted to just say that one of the biggest moments in that outside of the actual stories was that Michael and I were having a conversation where he asked, They have written consent forms. They have signed these agreements. However, do you think that I should go back and have them look over these and get their permission to have them in the study? And he didn't have to do that. He didn't even have to ask me if he could do that, but he did. And I think that's a really important part of 
youth involvement in these studies is treating them as humans as well because I'm sure when he went back and asked them for their permission to use all their stories they were ecstatic that like someone even thought like hey it matters if I want my story to be heard or not so I just thought that that was a really a good point to lay out for future research involving youth even if they're over 18 And yeah, just making sure that when you're working with youth, you maintain a relationship that is meaningful because some youth, when they get involved in these, they make connections that maybe you don't acknowledge or you don't see at first. Michael, that had nothing to do with you. You, You're great. Uh, (laughs) But making sure that these relationships are maintained so that even when the study is over, if you have other things that you think they can be involved in, making sure that you present them with the opportunity to do so, that's very important because it shows that this youth was not used for one particular purpose. They're a valued person with valued experiences and other opportunities. Yeah, I actually wanted to give credit to Lisa. She was the one who brought the idea of like, let's touch base with the youth and give them an opportunity to provide feedback. And we had a little bit of discussion back and forth on that topic. What could happen if we don't do it? What could happen if we do do it? And kind of just weighing those pros and those cons. And also, I think a big part of it was like, if we don't allow these participants to review the findings and have a say in terms of like, well, you know, I don't like this or this was wrong. I don't feel comfortable with this being in there. If we don't allow that, does that align with our own values as researchers and as an institute that's really been trying to challenge power imbalances that have existed in traditional research and traditional evaluation. Yeah. And I can kind of piggyback off of that. So at the Institute from my seat, I see a lot of projects that we have going on and some of the things that have happened in this particular evaluation, we see in other ones too, right? So this idea Diamond and Michael spoke about, there's lulls in research and evaluation time periods where maybe we're just collecting data or something like that. And so it's it's a bit of a passive time for us. So as researchers, we immediately divert our attention to our other projects that we have going on and take kind of advantage of that slower time period, but making sure that we communicate that to our non-research collaborators on these projects so that they know we're not intentionally leaving you out of conversations. And so I think to Diamond's experience, perhaps integrating regular touch points, even if there's nothing substantial to be discussed during that time period, just so that that connection is maintained. And just to let you all know and our listeners know around how our experiences are ever evolving and changing at the Institute. I loved what Michael and Hanji shared about the helpfulness and the benefit of including Diamond on developing survey measures and interview measures, and particularly Diamond sitting in with our interviewers and actually running practice interviews with them. Many of our graduate assistants had not yet interviewed youth generally, let alone former foster youth. And so having that experience, I think not only better prepared them for the content and the types of answers that they might expect, but also just to learn a new skill set. And I know that one of our graduate assistants was so moved by this experience that she is now participating in some additional professional development training around nonviolent communication. And we're talking about bringing that 
out institute-wide as a training for our interviewers who are interviewing folks with lived expertise. So we're doing all kinds of things to try to incorporate lessons learned from this evaluation and other studies into our practices. I know that this is something near and dear to Diamond's heart, so I wanted to give her an opportunity to comment on this, but we also are trying to prioritize youth compensation, lived expertise compensation, but youth compensation in particular. And we have located some guidance from the Children's Bureau on appropriate rates and those types of things, because of course, we don't want to be coercive and make youth feel like they have to participate with us, right? Like, I can't turn that amount of money down. Of course, I'm going to share my experiences with you. But at the same time, recognize that, sure, we as researchers over here might have a particular skill set, but you're also bringing a unique expertise and skill set to this team. So Diamond, I wanted to give you an opportunity to comment on that as well. Yeah. So a lot of the groups that I'm a part of, our main focus is that youth are organizational assets. We hold so much information, like Michael said. We know experiences and know things that other people can't even comprehend. So our experiences are so invaluable that to not compensate somebody for giving their time is almost an insult to their experiences and the value of their experiences. Especially when you go to the former foster youth range where these people are working full-time jobs and going to school. So to sit here and take the time, like even though it is a wonderful experience and I'm so blessed to be a part of something like this, my time is valuable. I have a full-time job. I am a full-time student. I'm applying for grad school, but I'm taking out the time to share my experiences so that, you know, good things can come upon this. So I feel as though even if it's for an hour or a one-time thing or an event, you should feel like they are valuable in that specific circumstance and compensation is just one piece of it. So this was a really large study with a lot of different data sources. And Hyangi, I'm curious, based on what the team learned from this particular evaluation, what's next? So I think that this policy evaluation is very critical and meaningful in that it not only evaluates the state's current approach to independent living skills development by identifying strengths and limitations, but also it provides future directions for policy development and amendment. So from multiple data sources, we learned that current caregiver-centered approach needs to be improved. So for example, a standardized and structured resources and support such as trainings should be provided to caregivers. And also vague policies make it harder for caregivers to translate the policy into specific practices, especially about providing age-appropriate life skills to youth. There are a few limitations in methodology. The most challenging part was recruitment. So the sample sizes for surveys and interviews were very small. And given the complexity of Florida's privatized system, a longer evaluation period could have allowed us to navigate more effective strategies to 
recruit more samples and increase their engagement as doctor. But despite this, our team was able to incorporate youth lived experience and voices into research, which is the key to our success. As child welfare researchers, we hope to continue to collaborate more with more our community partners and youth, including Diamond, <laughs> so that we can engage in research and share their lived experience with us. And we'll also disseminate our findings to our communities and our study participants to increase their engagement. And also they feel they are valued and their voices are not ignored. And the great news is that collaborating with research affiliates, our institute starts a longitudinal study of foster youth aging out of care in Florida soon. So please stay tuned. And Dr. Magurder may want to talk more about this. Sure. So the Institute several years ago completed a longitudinal study of the workforce that was very successful. We learned quite a bit that has led to some significant legislative changes. And so Dr. Price, our Institute director, and I knew that we wanted to undertake a new longitudinal study, and we were waiting for the right opportunity to present itself. And as increased legislation started coming out, like Senate Bill 80 last year, around better supporting youth in that transition age period, we thought that would make a lot of sense. And I think that our evaluation team here experienced some of the difficulties with obtaining comprehensive data, reliable data on youth outcomes, both at the state level and, and with the NIDA data. And so we thought this might be an opportunity for us to sort of build that rapport on our own, like Diamond said, building rapport with these youth, staying in regular communication with them, and following them from their time and care around age 17 for five years so that we can collect that data ourselves and hopefully produce similar outcomes to our previous longitudinal study around legislative policy enactment. We are very excited that that study is going to be launching in 2023. So stay tuned for more information on that. And to close us out, Diamond, I would just like to hear from you. What is the number one thing you'd like child welfare researchers to know about collaborating with children and families with lived expertise? I think the most important thing is that we are here and we want to help. A lot of the time, youth, foster parents, bio parents, whatever population you're trying to get insight from, we just don't know that the opportunity has presented itself. So making sure that you're actively going into your communities and asking for help, because I am 99% sure you'll find the help that you need in your community. I'd like to thank all of our guests for sharing their knowledge and experiences with us today. If you're interested in learning more about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at www.ficw.fsu.edu. You can also follow the Institute on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at FSU Child Welfare. Thank you to our executive producer, Mariana Tutwiler, our assistant director of communications, Emily Joyce, and our audio engineer and editor, Izzy Craig. And finally, thanks to all of you for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Lisa Magruder for the Florida Institute for Child Welfare.